I farm so hard, employees wanna find me And then wanna hire me What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy Working late nights, you best believe me My grades can only go ace Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay-Z Farm so hard, let's get paid Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. I'm your host today, Jim Pruitt, aka Farm D in the ED. And I have another special episode, something that's going to be cool, something that most of you guys are probably not doing in a manner that our special guest today is doing it. So without further ado, we're going to be talking about high dose nitroglycerin. And it's going to be in those patients that have acute pulmonary edema and particularly those acute heart failure patients that has been termed sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema or skate patients as the Scott Weingart would call it. But I can't really talk to this to the level that our guests can. So without further ado, can you go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience? Sure. Thanks, Jimmy, for having me on. Um, my name is Rachel Wine, and I am the ED pharmacy specialist at Detroit Receiving Hospital. A little bit of background about myself is that I went to pharmacy school at the University of Michigan. I came to Detroit Receiving Hospital for my PGY1, and then I fell in love with emergency medicine pharmacy, and I decided to stay on to do my PGY2 and ED here. And then um, I also decided to stay on to become the specialist here. So it's been a great couple of years. Absolutely. So I want to go ahead and jump right into this. This is going to be something that's very different for a lot of people. And if you're outside of ED, you probably won't see it. So for those who's not familiar with the disease state, can you kind of describe the basic pathophysiology of this scape or its acute pulmonary edema? Sure, no problem. So um, as Jimmy said, we actually see quite a bit of this in Detroit. So I'm very familiar with um, the sympathetic acute crash and pulmonary edema or acute decompensated heart failure. So what's really happening here? is when you have that left-sided heart dysfunction, you have an increased pulmonary capillary hydrostatic pressure. When you have that LV failure or the left ventricular failure, you're not able to pump blood to the aorta properly. So your pressure increases here, which causes a whole cascade of effects, right? So you're increasing pressure in the pulmonary veins, increasing pulmonary hydrostatic pressure, pushing fluid out of the capillaries into the intestinal space, and then the alveoli causing pulmonary edema. Additionally, um, you also have a sympathetic surge when you think about scape. So that's kind of an important factor here because that left ventricular dysfunction predisposes you to an increase in sympathetic tone and a release of catecholamines that can precipitate that flash pulmonary edema. So then you have um, increased heart rate, decreased diastolic time, um, an increase in end diastolic volume, and then you have impaired um, ventricular compliance, increased diastolic pressure, and that fluid flow back in the lungs. There's a whole lot of neurohormonal and organic mechanisms that go along with it as well. But I um, just wanted to kind of give you the basic overview there. So when you see these patients, too, because of those um, uh, mechanisms that I kind of described there, they're really going to be, um, they're going to be an emergency. All of these patients are almost always seen in our recess or trauma bays because they have very elevated um, blood pressure. They're having difficulty breathing because of the kind of fluid on their lungs there that's causing that. and then. Um, so we have to treat them emergently. And a lot of times we want to avoid intubation. Absolutely. So when these patients come in, they look like crap. Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to work in a facility where we see a good bit of them within the South, within the Bible Belt. And when they come into your recess bay, your providers are going to grab some tools. And it's very key to, uh, to identify these patients separately 
from other types of decompensated heart failure. So what are some diagnostic tools that can help identify these patients with SCAPE compared to some other things? Yeah, so some diagnostic tools, the things that I always see our providers doing is, number one is going to be ultrasound, right? You want to look at the heart on ultrasound. And what I think they're really looking for there with the point of care um, is for beelines, they see like heart failure, they can see the fluid on the lungs. Um, So that's kind of the number one thing. And of course, they're going to ask about the physical exam. Does the patient have heart failure? Did they take their meds today? Um, If they're non-compliant, all that. And then in terms of labs and everything too, we'll be looking at kind of heart failure labs. So BNP, um, obviously we're looking at the pulse ox to see how well they're breathing. Um, We almost always get a chest chest x-ray as well, but you really can't um, see what's going on with the patient just on the chest x-ray. So you've got to look at them as a whole. But I think the number one thing that our providers are always looking at is just signs, symptoms, story of the patient, um, background medical history, and then of course that ultrasound. That's cool. And I think it's that's interesting because, again, a lot of people who are not familiar with these patients, I think from a pharmacy standpoint, if you're not at the bedside and you see some of these medications and you're not familiar with it, you're like, whoa, what, what are they doing? But if you're at the bedside, you're new ED pharmacist and these patients come in, I think just looking at the things that our providers are doing can kind of help you point up you know, paint a picture of what we're trying to do. And when they ask you for nitro, kind of, you kind of have a better understanding, you feel better about it. So I think sometimes when this is ordered or we're talking about this, the goals of care need to be kind of identified. And I think that it's going to be key to identify this with your team. So can you briefly describe what are the major goals of therapy when treating patients with SCAPE? Absolutely. So goals of therapy, number one, is that we're trying to avoid intubation. That is the number one thing um, here, because a lot of times these patients decompensate fast. In our particular patient population, too, a lot of them are heavier body weight, so that makes them more complicated. So we really want to avoid intubation. Um, The second thing, too, is symptom relief for the patient. Um, They really, they're having difficulty breathing. They're scared. They're tachycardic, too. So by decreasing um, by providing the symptom relief, a lot of the other feelings that they feel will also melt away as well. And then we also want to, having a blood pressure that high, usually when I see them, they're over 200, obviously not safe, not healthy. So we want to decrease the blood pressure as well. That's cool. So let's kind of get into nitroglycerin itself and kind of help paint the picture. Why are we even using nitroglycerin? And particularly for a lot of providers or and our you know healthcare professionals that's not familiar with it, why are we using this high dose? Can you just give a brief introduction of the pharmacology of nitroglycerin? Yeah. So nitroglycerin has always been historically taught as a venodilator. And I've been lucky enough to work um, with one of the primary authors on a couple of these nitroglycerin studies. And he always, when he describes it, you know, he's like, it's historically a venodilator, but we use it for so much more than that. And, you know, as a venodilator, it increases your level of nitric oxide. And then this causes the reduction in mainly preload with, um, which has been how it's historically and conventionally always been used. How, when you have that increased level of nitric oxide, you then get the increased um, cyclic GMP, which then goes on to decrease, as I said, the preload. But with high-dose nitroglycerin, what we're really using it here for is afterload reduction or arterial vasodilation. When you give it at high doses, you're actually hitting your um, big cardiac arteries. And so that way you're causing way more arterial and afterload um, reduction. 
And when I say high doses, I'm talking doses usually at, at mu must be at least 500 mics IV bolus push, but you can also go up to um, two milligrams IV push as well. And it's funny too, because it was the very first time it was ever studied was actually as isosorbide dinitrate. And that is uh, nitroglycerin itself is nine times more potent than isosorbide dinitrate. So we moved away from using obviously the dinitrate version to um, normal nitroglycerin. But high dose nitro is where it's at for these patients. When you get that afterload reduction and the arterial um, dilation, you're really going to reduce um, and cause that sympathetic relief for them and then get that fluid off of um, the lungs as well and increase their left ventricular function. Perfect. And then I think some of the things that people need to consider is like the adverse effects as well. And I think everyone knows that you're going to have um, a headache and you're going to have that flushing and hypotension. But really, when I think about nitroglycerin, particularly in these patients, it's a crappy blood pressure reduction agent. <laughs> like overall, like even <laughs> when I have patients with, with, with chest pain, it, it just doesn't get the job done. And I went back and looked at some studies that looked at, you know, um, uh, like just hypertension emergency, and it just didn't perform as well as some of the other agents that we use. So hypertension is something that's key, but it's a crappy drug for blood pressure. And, you know, I, I hope none of the nitroglycerin drones, you know, find me on, on, on Twitter and kind of follow me from there. <laughs> but it's just not, it's not as good, but that's good for us in this state. And the other component of it is like looking at the PK, it's going to work super quick. Like I, I, yes. I particularly see like two, like in le less than a couple of minutes, you're going to see it for IV and then it's going to last probably like, you know, five to 15 minutes. But now that we kind of talk about some of that pharmacology of it, again, you mentioned it briefly, but I really want the audience to get a good understanding of some of the difference between the dose and formulations and why you shouldn't use one for versus the other and why one is more advantageous versus the other. So can you really kind of talk about the formulations in regard as the, the bolus versus the drip, um, some sublingual tablets and kind of the disadvantage to using uh, nitro paste? Definitely. So the number one thing that's going to be the best is going to be the IV bolus. So I'll just talk about that first. So IV bolus, um, anywhere, like I said, from 500 mics to two gram, or sorry, excuse me, two milligram boluses is where it's going to be. So we, the way that we do it here, but it can be done anywhere, is we pull it straight out of our nitroglycerin vials. So, you know, for a one milligram bolus, that's going to be five mLs. And we, it's very important to tell the nurse to push this slowly, right? Because you don't want to slam a milligram of nitroglycerin into a patient. And then, although it is a crappy blood pressure med, we don't want to bottom them out right away. Um, so that's going to work really fast. As you mentioned, IV onset is about uh, one minute to five minutes. So you'll see a blood pressure reduction and probably some symptom improvement within one to two minutes of it being given. So always important to recycle that blood pressure after you get it. The original studies that was done by um, Levy and colleagues actually looked at doing two milligram boluses um, every three minutes. So usually here we start with one to two milligram boluses and then um, always reassess the patient after we give another bolus. The other formulation that you can give is the sublingual tablets. And this is really if the patient doesn't have IV access. So a sublingual tablet is, you know, um, 400 micrograms. So we always give probably about three tablets, and this is to just start them off. If they're really looking cra like crap, as you mentioned, and we don't have IV access yet, just stick a couple sublingual tablets under their tongue, and you'll get the same effect as you would by giving a one milligram bolus. It's just going to take a little bit longer to see that onset since it is a sublingual tablet. And then with the nitro paste, 
I agree with you. This is really a lot of times you want to throw the kitchen sink at a patient, especially in the ED. You know, we all we all do that. But the nitro paste takes about 30 minutes for an onset of action. So you're not really doing your patient much um, benefit by giving them that nitro paste because it's not going to work immediately. It's not going to provide any blood pressure reduction, any symptom improvement um, within the time that you're really seeing them in the recess phase. Absolutely. By, by the time you do that, you, you already got the, the intubation set up. Uh, their tube, they have exactly. a preload reduction because of that positive pressure. And they're going to be even more profoundly hypotensive because you're probably going to start them off on high dose propofol as well. So it just does nothing. And um, <laughs> a, a lot of this, I didn't, it wasn't happening at my shop, but people talk to me from smaller facilities and say, hey, you know, people are doing this and people are doing this in a pre hospital setting. So, um, for these patients that's coming in this way, please don't throw the paste on them. It's just, it's, a, it's not, a, not a good thing. And I'm, if you come to my shop, I'm going to wipe it straight off and throw it on the floor. I'm like, it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, and then when looking at the bolus, you know, we, we, we talked about that. A lot of places are terrified. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how many places I've, I've you know, been or if I've talked to people who are just like, well, I just can't consider myself going from five mics per minute to, you know, 500 to 2000 mics, you know, given over a minute. And it's just something that a lot of places, you know, for not evidence based, but just due to we've always done it a different way. Won't, won't do so. Um, some strategies that other places have done, it, it's particularly at my shop, is instead of giving that you know, you know, one to two milligram bolus over a slow push, I just start the, the drip at 400 mics and, and do it for five minutes and get close to that. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Because a lot of places just won't let us do the, the bolus. Yeah, you know, I've heard that too, and I'm lucky enough in, to practice in a place where um, we are not scared of nitro at all, but I always hear that whenever. Uh, residents and physicians leave here, they go somewhere else and they're like, oh my God, the pharmacist wouldn't let me push a milligram of nitro. So just um, PSA to all the pharmacists out there who are listening, don't be that pharmacist. Um, (laughs) But if you don't want to do a bolus, you can always do the drip as Jimmy mentioned. So that's always another good way. If your nurses or your physicians are a little bit nervous to push that high dose nitro, you can start them off at a high dose drip. And we sometimes, a lot of times by giving this bolus, we're trying to avoid putting them on a nitro drip. That's another good uh, goal of therapy there, especially because depending on where you work, you may or may not have to go to the ICU if you're placed on a nitro drip. So by giving these high dose boluses, you're sometimes avoiding that. But if you're running the drip in the ED and you're running it at a high rate, really what you want to, what you want to run it at is doses greater than 200, 200 to 250 mics per minute, um, because that's when you're really going to get, again, that super important arterial um, dilation and also the afterload reduction. So um, if you have the capability to set up your drip to do that and um, run it that way, then that's another good way that you can help these patients. Absolutely. It's going to be a cool part. And all the uh, the, the people who are manufacturing these smart pumps, give me this bolus from the, from, the, from the pump future, please. If I can just have it to where we don't have to draw it up and we just have to push it, if I can just put the drip on there and just give boluses from there, Somebody figure out how to do that. That'd, that'd be super cool. You can just push the 10 cc's through the pump. Everyone can be happy. I think the nursing educators and, you know, med safety will all be happy. So if, if you can't get the bonuses like you're doing at your shop, uh, please find, somebody find a way to make that happen because the pumps that I, I use don't allow me to do it for nitro yet, but I can do it for propofol oh, and stuff. So, <laughs> oh, okay. so that'd be cool. Um, but yeah. I, 
I think the I think the audience really need to understand why we got you on board for this this topic. And can you kind of just briefly talk about the history of high dose nitro at DMC? Because it's something that I can probably guarantee you less than ten percent of the audience are doing in the manner and has been doing it for as long as you guys have been doing it. Yes. So high dose nitroglycerin has been being utilized at the DMC way before my time. It was about 2007 that the original study came out from the DMC, and that was done by Philip Levy and colleagues. And this was uh, mostly done because we see patients who have multiple times acute decompensated heart failure, and it has, you know, a pretty lethal um, mortality rate. During that exact treatment period of 2007, it was about 15%. Um, percent. And so during the immediate treatment period, and that's why we, Livia said, you know, nitrates have been shown to produce a substantial decrease in pulmonary artery pressure, about 30 to 50%, showing clinical improvement in most individuals with decompensated heart failure. Um, but he knew that like standard doses are inadequate for those with severe respiratory distress. So he came out with this study, the original one, um, that looked at using high-dose nitroglycerin for this specific population of patients. And um, what they actually found in, the, in this study was, and it was a smaller one, it was um, 29 patients received high-dose nitroglycerin, um, but intubation was required in 13.8% of patients. They also utilized um, BiPAP, which is another standard of care usually for these patients. And then ICU admission was about in 37% of them. But really what we found was that hypotension was not symptomatic at all. So it only developed in one patient. And then um, they also found that those who weren't treated with the high-dose nitroglycerin, this is where it gets really important, um, which was 45 patients, um, the intubation occurred in 26.7% versus the 13.8%. Um, and ICU admission was 80% versus 37.9%. So it really was found to be um, associated with a lower rate of intubation, BiPAP, and ICU admission. And pretty much ever since then, the DMC, uh, the Detroit Medical Center, has been using high-dose nitroglycerin for this specific patient population with really good results. I think I, I appreciate the fact they put in it a hypotension because I've sat in long meetings back and forth with, you know, inpatient uh, pharmacists and physicians, you know, saying, hey, you know, this is this is too high. These patients can become hypotensive with these dosing. And I kind of want to reassure them that the evidence-based way to practice and something you guys have seen at your shop for, you know, a, quite a while now is to use those high doses and hypotension if you select the right patient won't occur that cause symptoms. So I think that's key that they kind of brought that in. And lastly, uh, I know your time is precious. Can you briefly just talk to us about the study that uh, uh, Suprat Wilson did at, at your shop a few years ago? Yeah. So Suprat was actually my program director. Um, so I got to um, hear about this a lot from her, which was really cool. So Suprat did a study in 2016, which was kind of a follow-up study to the original one from 2007. And this was retrospective study looking at 395 patients that received nitroglycerin in the ED, again, for acute decompensated heart failure over a five-year period. And this one was a little bit different because they looked at patients who received bolus only versus those who received bolus plus infusion and then those who just received the infusion. Um, and so what they ended up finding out in this study was that the high-dose bolus was associated, again, with the decreased ICU admission shorter length of stay, 
However, there was no difference in adverse outcomes, so the intubation, for example. Um, there was a couple of limitations to this study, um, most likely the number one being that our particular institution does require if you are on a nitroglycerin drip to go to the ICU. So that might not be the case for everybody. So you could really decrease ICU admissions if you give these high-dose boluses or um, high-dose drips as well. Um, but essentially, it was another good study which showed that intravenous nitroglycerin by bolus is associated with shorter hospital length of stays compared with just a continuous infusion. Can you touch on the dosing that were used in the infusions to kind of, and then compare it to where, what you think the study would have shown if they would have used the, you know, the four to 500 mics per minute for five minutes? Yeah. So um, it looks like here in the study that when they started them on the bolus, again, as I mentioned, they usually did the two milligram bolus for the actual infusion rate was that the median starting rate of nitroglycerin infusion was just 20 mics per minute with a maximum rate of 35 mics per minute. And then in the combination group, what they ended up finding was um, the median starting rate, again, was 20 mics per minute versus the 60 mics per minute in these patients. So it's interesting to note that these patients who were started on the infusion weren't really started on the correct high dose of the infusion. So there's potentially even more of a benefit to be found if they were started at much higher doses. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is like, if you're not going to give me the bolus, um, let me get the high, the high dose, you know, infusion and run it over that three to five minutes and just see if I can prevent these patients from being intubated because I see it over and over again. These patients come in, they look like a death doormat and, you know, you're, you're, you're for sure going to tube them. And I just grabbed the nitro and it started at 400 and within like, you know, five to 10 minutes, these people, you know, yeah. like they're looking better than how, how we're looking. And I think it's profound. And for my colleagues that are in different areas of the hospital and, you know, those who don't see this often in their shops, you got to give this a chance. You got to have different mechanisms to use this because you can throw the sublinguals underneath their tongue. Okay. That, that buys you some time. Or you can start to drip at a high rate. Or you can do what the most efficacious and most well-studied thing to do and give these people the bolus and find a way to make a protocol to make this available and teach your team around you. So I think it's, it's, it's key to kind of let people know that. And when they bring this up, you know, they say, oh, well, the doses they use in the study for the drip wasn't that high. But I was like, but you can't ignore that two milligram bolus that was given that saved <laughs> yep. these patients. So there's a few other things. Again, you mentioned isosorbide that was studied as well. We won't kind of go down that route. I'll attach all this to the show notes. Before we get off, can you kind of describe the pharmacist's role in treatment of these patients, particularly our ED pharmacists? And if you don't necessarily have a, a full-time pharmacist in the ED, so how our central pharmacy, your main inpatient pharmacy colleagues can help us out? So I think the ED pharmacist role is very important here. And the number one thing is knowing how to give nitro and knowing how to pull it up. I had an incidence once where we had a patient like this come in and I had drawn up, I think about six milligrams and the attending was like, oh, if you never know how much nitro you want to give, just look at what, at what your ED pharmacist has already drawn up for you. So just first of all, knowing these patients, knowing what they look like, and then thinking proactively about what you're going to do is the number one thing. And then depending on what formulations you have, you're going to be the one that they're relying on for exactly how to pull it up. It's kind of interesting because, you know, the nitroglycerin bottles are in mics per ml. So if you ask a nurse or a physician to pull up two milligrams, they're not going to do it as fast as you are um, in terms of conversion of, or math. And then side effects wise, dosing wise, you're going to be the expert on that. 
on how much bolus you can give, how to start the drip at. You can be the expert at telling how the nurse to push it, looking for what side effects, um, the monitoring parameters to see exactly if the drug is working. That's one of the things I love about being an ED pharmacist is, like you said, I get to see the drug work like right before my eyes. So this is one of the coolest ones in my personal opinion to see. And then for main pharmacy as well, you know, they can help out if you don't have an ED pharmacist. Um, having that nitroglycerin and running it over to the ED is going to be super important. Um, familiarizing yourself again with this. So when you see a nitro drip put in, you can make sure that it's the right dose, the right infusion rate. Um, so I think that those are probably the main points. But number one is just being at the bedside with the physicians and the nurses. So you all kind of, as we all know, collaborate in the ED together to make sure that this patient is getting the best optimal care. One of the things that I think is key, and I think a lot of times if you're at a shop that does this, you know, a lot of the time, that's great. But I, I'm on I'm on board now to making protocols and try to make order set to kind of guide our team through it. Because a lot of times this is just going to be done at the bedside. There's no one's going to be put to the computer and waiting for a few minutes and then going to get it. But if you have a guideline and they go to order this, they can kind of see this over and over again on paper versus at the, at the bedside as well. And then if you have a guideline that kind of walks people through it, when central pharmacy okay. verifying the order, they can say, oh, well, they're using it for this. The patient's on BiPAP. Uh, the patient, you know, came in with shortness of breath. Maybe they're doing this high-dose nitroglycerin for this and they can verify the order. Or if you're a nurse and you've never done it before and you're sitting there, you do it this time because everyone's in the room, you can go back and look at something like this to kind of help help you familiarize yourself and pull up the evidence. And I think it's another thing is key for us as ED pharmacists to provide education on this medication and kind of explain right. why... Are we not using the pace? Why are you throwing three tablets of of nitro on, on, on my patient? Like, why are you doing these things? I think us educating is going to be key. And I, again, it's one of the most satisfying things to see a patient. They're like, okay, getting ready for intubations. And you're like, hold on, let's try nitro real quick. You throw that nitro on and they're like, oh, they're, they're on the phone texting their mom <laughs> right <Yeah>. after. That. <laughs> you know, they're hanging out after and you're like, hey, this patient may go home. That's cool because you go from I see you to I see you later. <laughs> you know, that's going to be the cool part. <laughs> Any final thoughts as we get ready to close out? I think if you're not doing high dose nitro at your shop right now, then um, you should be or you should talk to your physicians or your pharmacy department about potentially, as Jimmy said, making that guideline or educating people on it. And if you have the opportunity to ever see it happen, um, go down to the ER and watch it work. I definitely encourage that because it is really cool. But I think that the ED pharmacist has a huge role in therapy for these patients. And Again, I thank you for coming onto the show. And I thank the audience for listening to another episode of the Pharmacy Heart Podcast. This is something that's really cool. I'm going to attach a lot of the information and all the studies we talked about to the show notes. So visit the website at pharmacyheart.com. I'm going to also put our Twitter accounts on there so you can follow us on Twitter and just kind of blow us up. And we can kind of go back and forth on there and talk about some stories that we had. So thank you guys. And remember, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in an ED, but everything you do... Make sure you farm so hard.